have had the tendency to preach really long in this series. Um, now, Wayne has been begging for longer sermons. And I have decided to give him what he wants. So, buckle in. At 2 o'clock, we will uh, we'll try to wrap this thing up. All right? Um, really, it will be painless. Just be hunger. Hunger. You can get over hunger. Um, all right. Uh, let's do a quick review of where we've been. We've been in a, we're now at the fourth week of a four-week series. So we're right at the end of a series we've done on justice. And as I told you, this is a series that was really in the works for nine months. I didn't want to preach on justice in the midst of uh, the, the excitement of racial tension or any other issue that emerges in our current events. I wanted to take time to let this thing marinate so that we came to it uh, not with the excitement of current events, but with the intentional study of God's Word. But to do a series on justice uh, would take a long time if we're trying to do a systematic, comprehensive view. So what we've done is we've taken this really big issue of justice, and we've really zeroed in, we've narrowed our focus looking at the Gospel of Luke. And we've tried to see real-life situations where justice emerges and take away some lessons. So we've walked with John the Baptist, we've walked with Jesus, and we've learned some things about what it means to do justice in our world, right where we live. So in that first week, we noticed Jesus with a paralytic man. There was this man paralyzed, we don't know how long, but his friends bring him to Jesus. They set him right in front of him. And, and you remember what Jesus said to him? First thing, not... Not, not you are healed, not you are now relieved of the oppression of your physical ailment. No, that's not what he said. Remember what he said? Your sins are, for, your sins are forgiven. And from there, we explored several other scriptures, and we came down on this conclusion right here. Take a look. This is the conclusion we landed on in week one, that the fundamental injustice in the world is our rebellion against God. The fundamental justice in the world is the death and resurrection of Christ. There was justice in our world, but it was Jesus who paid it. Not you, not me. That was justice. So the fundamental injustice is in my heart, and the fundamental justice is with Christ on the cross and then in the resurrection. Well, then in that week two, we looked at Jesus and John the Baptist confronting people of power, people who held great state power, and we considered how these men were addressed by both John the Baptist and Jesus. And what we saw was this. Here's the conclusion we saw was that Jesus and the John the Baptist, they did not rebuke them for being part of a state-sanctioned oppressive system. They focused on the individual and their individual decisions. So that when John the Baptist confronts Roman soldiers... Men who were carrying great state authority, men who were abusing their power. He did not call them to get out of the military. He called them to do people right, treat them fairly, enforce the laws of the Roman Empire, don't go any farther, don't exploit them. And the same to tax collectors. Jesus wasn't calling out an oppressive system as if, as if anybody that's part of uh, anyone that's part of the state or wields state power, like the police, that automatically you're bad. We didn't see that happening with Jesus or with John the Baptist. We see him calling out individuals and individual decisions. 
And then last week we looked at how Jesus interacted with people who were hurting, people blind, and then received sight. And then we noticed this passage where there were babies being brought to Jesus, and the disciples kept telling these parents, get away, get away, away from the rabbi. And Jesus said, no, no, you bring the children to me. And we noticed this about justice. First, uh, for Jesus, part of doing justice involved caring for the physical needs of the people in front of him and protecting the most vulnerable, especially children. And that's where we landed last week. This week we have one more big lesson about justice out of the Gospel of Luke. And we will start with a dinner party. Here we go. Luke chapter 5, we pick up at verse 27. Luke 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were sitting with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their, select, uh, to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. Sinners to repent. All right, that's our main text here. It's a dinner party. Now, we know from other passages in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, that Jesus just didn't eat with tax collectors and others. We also know he was eating with prostitutes. Okay? So, here, there's some takeaways I want out of this passage. So, we're just going to, we're going to dig off, uh, we're going to draw out of this passage uh, three big things. But out of these three things, we'll explore some other things. So, let's take the first one. Jesus calls sinners to repentance. No surprise. We just did a review of where we've already been. Here again is a group of people, some who held state power, some that were on the margins of society, some that surely were oppressed. And what does Jesus say? I came to call them to repentance. I didn't call them to activism. I didn't call them to, to upend the system. I called them to repentance. I'm calling them to change. I'm calling them to myself. Jesus fundamentally is calling individuals to come to him. That's, that's where all of this starts. It's the call to the first song we just sang, change my heart, give me a new heart. That's what Jesus is calling them to do. By the way, when you call someone to repentance, you know what they have to acknowledge before they repent? That they need repentance, that they've done something wrong. You know one of the hardest things to teach a teenager? That they've done something wrong. That's a side note. Maybe from personal experience, maybe not. Maybe I just needed to drop some wisdom. Maybe I have teenagers in the room that needed to hear that. I don't know. Maybe I'm parenting indirectly. Uh, okay. The other thing I'm going to notice here is um, we're, we're up. We don't have this on the slide. I just want to read it again. They say this, why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I want you to there's something there now in this second point I want to note that's very important. Go, go put up that second. There it is. Jesus is associating with different kinds of people. And it's rubbing the religious leaders the wrong way. This is not who they would expect a rabbi, a religious teacher, to be hanging out with. Particularly one, at this point, that would have been claiming some type of messiahship. If we are looking at the Gospel of John, we know Jesus is already claiming some things they really don't like to hear. And this man is hanging out with these people 
But what we see is Jesus is hanging out with all kinds of people. He's hanging out with people that no one else wants to hang out with, particularly religious leaders. Jesus doesn't live in a bubble. So much so that when he's hanging out with these different people, the religious leaders look at him and say, what are you doing? Don't you know that as a religious leader yourself, or at least you're claiming to be, you only hang out with this group of people? Jesus breaks the mold over and over. He hangs out with different colors and different sounding people. Different people uh, in the socioeconomic strata. He hangs out with people at the bottom and at the top. That's what we see Jesus doing. I think that's really important for us to see here in the text. Now also right there in the question is not just an acknowledgement that Jesus hangs out with different kinds of people. You can, see, you can hear it just as well as I can. It's a judgment. It's a judgment. Why do you hang out with those people? Uh, now this is something we're going to have to dig on. Third point, third thing I see is the Pharisees and the religious leaders redefine justice. It's very important. We're going to spend a lot of time here. So these are religious leaders who would have known the Old Testament. They knew their Bibles. And they knew that great passage in Micah. Micah 6.8, I'm sure many of you know it. They knew this passage. Micah 6.8, He has shown you, O man, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. To act justly. First thing, what does he require? First thing, you act justly. Now there, the word there can also be translated right. You do right. One way we might say it today is, do people right? Do people right? That's what God requires of you. You do people right. Oh, don't put that one up yet. You're too, you're too fast. Too fast. I was setting you up for it. Okay. Now, now how do I want to set you up? Now you've seen it. Maybe you didn't. So here, here God tells them, you do people right. But for the Pharisees, but for the Pharisees, it's, you, you don't do all people right. Particularly not those people over there, right? You see, they're calling Jesus out because he's hanging out with a group of people that don't deserve to be hung out with. Another way we could just summarize what's happening between what Micah 6, 8 is saying and the redefinition we see happening with the Pharisees is this. Here it is. Now we'll take a look at it. God says you do people right. The Pharisee says you do these specific people right but not those people. That becomes a really big problem. I'm going to summarize that problem. Next slide. Here it is. This is the big problem. The Pharisees took the command to do right, to act justly, and they redefined it. They narrowed it. Oh, you do right. Just do right to these people, not to these people. This is a human problem that's been going on for a very long time, but the religious leaders knew better than this. They knew God's heart on this. He knew the call of God is to treat all people right. Now, are there sins that have to be called out? Absolutely. Are there boundaries on God's people? If you start behaving this way, that you no longer allowed in the community of God? Absolutely. But in terms of doing people right, you don't discriminate. You do all people right. But the Pharisees had a way of reworking that. They narrowed it. So they did right for these people. 
And we see this happening over and over again. Let's just take one more look at another passage. Luke 15. Let's put that one up. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners, well, they were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You see, they, because they had redefined justice, what it meant to do people right, this was a judgment. Again, Jesus was stepping outside of what it was acceptable because he was doing right for all people. And they knew, at least they thought they knew, that you only do these people right because they deserve it. They had redefined justice and they had narrowed its focus to only a certain group of people. Now, Jesus has got a really big problem with this. And he actually tells a parable about this. Now, we read it last week, but I want to come to the parable from a different direction this time. I want to put it within its context. So, you know the parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Take a look at what we see before we ever get to the parable. Check this out. Luke 10, verse 25 through 29. Now, on one occasion, an expert in the law, he stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to in inherit eternal life? And what is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? Well, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor. Here it is. We're coming. Love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and live. Verse 29. But he, the expert in the law, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify his sin of narrowing what it meant to do good. He, he did not want to, to be commanded to love all people, because this is the same guy that's in the same group that wants to make sure that you do good for that group, but definitely not over here to this group. You don't hang out with tax collectors, you don't hang out with prostitutes, you don't hang out with sinners, you don't even, you don't even interact with them. You do good to this group of people that deserves it. Well, Jesus is now questioning that redefinition, that narrowing of what it means to do justice. And what does the expert in the law want to do? He's got to justify himself. He's got to justify his sin of not treating all people, not doing all people right. So now he asks the question, well, who's my neighbor? I mean, really, who's my neighbor? Here, you know, the expert in the law is trying to justify by arguing these people are my neighbors, but you know these people aren't. So Jesus tells a story. Here's the story. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped up his clothes, they beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan. As he traveled, he came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, and then pouring on oil and wine, then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of, the, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. 
You know what happens when you have a narrow view of justice? You know what happens when you redefine what it means to do people right? You, it becomes do these people right? What happens is you walk around opportunities for justice. You walk around people that don't fit your category and you ignore the need right in front of you. This is a big problem. And Jesus is calling it out. You help anyone that's right in front of you and you have means to help. You do not carry around this idea that you help this person, but definitely not those people. It's the guy that no one would have expected, the Samaritan, that actually does the good thing. He does right to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers. Okay. But how? But i, I got to wonder, how far does Jesus take this thing? Like, when he says, well, we're supposed to do all people right, I mean, how many people? Like, I mean, really all kinds of people? I think the one category that we probably might struggle with the most, that really we might wonder what Jesus has to say about it, is our enemies. What about those people that haven't done you right? What about the people that hurt you? What do you do with those people? The people that you really could justifiably, at least as we might think of it, you could actually treat badly because they treated you badly. Well, unfortunately, in our flesh, we got a passage in the Bible we got to deal with. And I'm so sorry. Jesus said this. And because we submit to him as his followers, we've got to take him at his word on this one. Here it is. If you don't get uncomfortable with this, then you have arrived at glory. You probably are, you, you may just be Jesus yourself. I don't know. If you don't have any, if you have never struggled with this one. This one's a tough one. Luke 6, 27 through 36. I, this is an excerpt of this larger passage. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Oof. I bet all of you got some people in your life you don't like, and it, they may even have hurt you. I'd rather just cut those people out. We start by praying for them. That's a good place to start. And then you start to figure out ways that you can do good when you have opportunity. But that is very hard. This is a very hard teaching of Jesus. But do you see how it comes under this larger umbrella of doing all people right? You do all people right. Your enemies... Poor people, people that look funny, people that look great, people that are poor, people that are rich. You do all people right. But the Pharisees have worked themselves into a condition where they had narrowed that view. They had redefined it in such a way that, that you, do, you, you do justice over here, but you don't have to do it over here. And they had trained themselves that there were certain things they weren't guilty of. So if they didn't eat with sinners, if they walked around a person on the road, they didn't have any any issue with their conscience because they had figured out a way to justify that sin. They could not be they could not be called out for being unjust. Those people did not deserve to be treated justly. Jesus upends all of that. It's really hard for us. I understand it. That can get really difficult. But aren't you glad that this is the way God works? Aren't you glad that He came to save every person with different color skin? speaking every kind of language. I'm really glad for that. Aren't you glad that God came into the world 
to call all kinds of different people. I think you know the passage I'm driving to. John 3.16. Maybe you know it. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. There are going to be a lot of dark-skinned people in the new creation. There's even going to be Terry in the new creation. There's going to be people that speak Spanish, Portuguese, English. You get it. It's going to be a very, very diverse place. All under the Lordship of Christ. And aren't you glad that God didn't narrow His view of justice? Aren't you glad that He didn't redefine what it meant to do people right? I'm really glad that He had all people, all kinds of people in view. So that's, that's what I find. I, find I, I see all of that all of that happening, all of that sitting inside of that dinner party in Luke chapter 5. Did you see everything I saw? A lot. A lot at that dinner party. Let's make some application. First point of application right here. We need to get to know people that are different from you, different from me. We need to get to know different kinds of people. So just make sure that you're not living in a bubble. We live in a world where you can watch news that, you, that, that, that fits your perspective. We live in a world where you only have to hang out with people or follow people online that you like. Just make sure that you've got a diverse group of people around you. And this could even start as simple as learning the name of the Walmart greeter. You know that person that just stands there? You don't really know what they're doing. Just stand there. Often it might, it's a teenager. It wouldn't be a bad idea to just say, Hey, thanks for working today. What's your name? My name is Jason. What's your name? Just want to say hi. You know how far it goes just to learn someone's name? It gives them dignity. Maybe you start there. Many of you know I go to a barber that has black skin. And, by the way, Jay Jones' son also is a barber. And he told me that black barbers can do a fade on the hair like no one else. And I told him that, that I told my barber the first time he cut my hair that he did some great things for my marriage. Because Tess noticed immediately the fade. You start hanging out with people who look different than you, you might get a good fade too. Alright? Alright? But you get the point. Don't live in a bubble. Just make sure you know people that are different than you. That's just a great first step to the way to follow Jesus. Alright. Second point of application. Here it is. Avoid sophisticated ways of justifying sin. Alright. Now this one's... Now, now we're gonna, we've got to dig here. Because there are a lot of ways that we justify our sin. Now, if I zoom this thing out and I look broadly in our current, uh, our current culture, there's a particular way right now, as it relates to justice, that we are justifying, that there is a justification for, uh, avo- uh, for justifying sin. There's a particular way of justifying a particular sin in our culture. So I want you to just take a little journey with me through how this is happening. Because I think, I think we need to acknowledge it and we need to call it out. So, racism is a sin. Let me give you the definition for racism. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines racism. This, uh, a belief that race is a fundamental deter- uh, determinant of human traits and capacities and that racial differences pr- produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. 
It's this idea that your skin color makes you superior than someone else. And that degrades the image of God that every human being carries. Racism is a sin because you are degrading a person that God has put his image on. Sin, racism, is a sin. Okay. But in our current day, racism is being redefined. Let me, let me, let me just quote one scholar who has done a good job of summarizing that redefinition. Uh, here's Thaddeus Williams in his book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. He says, racism is defined as prejudice plus power. A definition invented by ni- in 1970 by a white social scientist named Patricia Vidal Bavida. Uh, I don't know how to say her name. It's not Bavida, Padva. Only those in power can properly be deemed racist. Thus, it is impossible for any person of color to be racist because they aren't in power. Only white people can be truly racist because white people, it is claimed, hold all the power. I want you to hear from an African-American, a black sociologist. Uh, We'll go to the next slide. I'm trying to remember his last name. Uh, Michael Dyson. He said this back in 2012, BET, the TV network BET, Black Entertainment Television. Uh, He said this in a backstage interview. Go on YouTube and find this. I thought about actually just showing this clip, but let's just quote it here. Here's what he says. Racism presupposes the ability to control a significant segment of the population economically, politically, and socially by imposing law, covenant, and restriction on their lives. Black people ain't had no capacity to do that. Can we be bigoted? Yes. Can we be prejudiced? Yes. Can we be racist? No. Now you see what we have here. We have two very different definitions of racism in play. We have one by Merriam-Webster's Dictionary that has been the long-standing definition of what it means to be racist. To actually view a people as inferior based on their skin color. That is a degrading, a dehumanization of a person based on skin. It removes the belief that they are equal because of the, they are image bearers of God. And that needs to be called out wherever you find it. It is sin. But now, with this redefinition, you have a whole group of people that can't be racist. Sounds a lot like the Pharisees redefining justice so that when they walk around a person who is in need, they, can't, they can justify it and you can't call them out on it because that's not real justice. So now you have a whole group of people that can actually view another group of people as inferior or as problematic, or as bad, but you can't call them out on it. Because now we've redefined the word. Here's, here's how I'm going to summarize the problem. So everything I just said, I tried to put into uh, just a couple sentences. This redefinition of racism is dangerous. Because it's telling a whole group of people that they cannot be guilty of a particular sin. But the reality is this. That re- racism can affect, in fact, every individual heart. And redefining the word doesn't change that truth. Do you know the word in English that has the power of racism, that carries the power of racism? Like when you say the word, you get the meaning immediately. It's not prejudice. Bigot comes a little closer. But you know the word you don't want to be called because it does carry the weight of its sinfulness? Racist. 
that carries the power and the weight of racism. Because that's what the word means. But when you begin redefining words, you're on a slippery slope where you can justify you can justify certain behaviors and let some people off the hook. Black people can be racist. And white people sure can too. And we got a long history of that too. And do you know racism doesn't just go between white and blacks? Do you know Mexicans can call out Caucasians because of their skin color? Yeah, a lot of them can, can hold us as bad people. I say us because I'm white. It, it, you get the point here. Do you know that Asians can be racist to black people? Do you know that? Did you know that, that black people can be racist to Mexicans? I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I'm just pulling some, some of the ways we talk in, popular, in our popular culture here. Racism can infect every human heart. And so you know the call to me is i got to be real careful not to be a racist. Not because I'm white and I hold power. Because I am a human being in the flesh who can quickly begin to judge someone based on their skin color and treat them as something less than human. Do you know when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan? Do you know what never comes up in the parable? Skin color. It's because every one of us has the potential to walk around someone in need because of any number of things, and racism can be one of them. And I don't care what skin color you're carrying. We can all degrade someone else because of their skin color. So the call to repent of racism is a call to every human being. And I reject the redefinition of racism. Why? Because I believe words matter. And the intellectual stream out of which the redefinition is coming is a postmodern stream that says there is no absolute truth. And when you don't have absolute truth, guess what? You get to start redefining words however you want to redefine them. You want to know what else is running right along this stream? The idea that you can be born with a male anatomy, but you can call yourself a girl. When we get there, words no longer have meaning. So I want to call that out. And I want to call it out as a sneaky way of justifying sin. Yes. Yes, black community, you can be racist. Hey, white community, you can be racist. And you actually have a long history of it in the United States that you probably should acknowledge. And at this point, I think most of us have acknowledged that. We do not redefine words. That's my point. Be very careful. Be very careful. All right. So let's now just zoom it out a little bit more to something that's going to go right to the heart of things. Third application and final thing I want to say on this. We need to avoid a limited view of justice. This is so important, I think. This is kind of like the, the last hurrah of the series. The last thing I really want to say about this as it emerges from the Gospel of Luke. In our culture, there's this idea that when you talk about social justice, you're really only talking about the big three. That's how we talk about it. When we talk about justice, there's really only three big things that emerge. It's the thing that everyone wants to talk about. Here they are. This is the trinity. The social justice trinity. Right here. Race, gender, and sexuality. And when, you, know, you know the common saying that if, if all you have is a hammer, everything becomes a nail, right? Everything you see needs to be hammered. 
Well, if all, if you see justice as only related to race, gender, and sexuality, then all the problems in the world will be related to one of those. That's just not the case. To do people right is so much bigger than that. Can I just give you four examples? I'm just, I, literally, just, just four examples. Protecting unborn children, justice issue. Educational services for special needs children, justice issue. I got, a, I got a little bit of investment on this one because my wife teaches in this area. When school systems do not give resources to exceptional children or do not provide all that is available to them, justice issue. And I praise God that we got a school board that looks at that. I'm looking right at you over here. I'm not saying your name is live. But I'm so grateful we are looking at that. We acknowledge that. That's a justice issue. You ever thought about exceptional children being a justice issue? In our world, why would it be? It's only race, gender, and sexuality. No, no. White kids with autism, justice issue. Okay? I don't care if they're poor or rich, justice issue. I want to take the last two here. Caring for the elderly. Hello. You ever walked into a nursing home? you got justice issues all over the place. How someone is treated near the end of life or when they cannot care for themselves, justice issue. And it is so sad, a thing you don't hear very much in our news, is how, how our health care system works for the elderly, particularly in nursing homes. Now, I get it. When COVID hit, there was a lot of talk about nursing homes. But minus COVID, did you see nursing homes in the news very often? I didn't. Assisted living? I didn't. Rehab centers? I didn't. Justice issue. And then last, access to mental health resources. We go long on that one. We won't. Access to mental health issues. I have talked to many people who have lots of resources financially who still struggle to get access to mental health issues because some of that is tied up in the state tied up in the federal system. you got justice issues there. And I know there are poor people that have a, lot of, have a hard time getting access to those as well. Justice issue. It's brown, black, white, doesn't matter. This is a justice issue. So we need to deal with that. Now we do what we can in our little plot of land. That's, as we've said, we can't change everything, but we do what we can. This is what it means to do right to all people where you live. But in case we have forgotten, even if justice is that big and it includes all these other, other arenas that we're not talking about, we should never forget that injustice starts in your heart. And it is your treason to God that has, that has started all of this. It was in my heart. Jesus said, all those evil things out in the world, they started inside of you. And what did Jesus come to do? He came to pay for that sin. He didn't come to pay for the oppression of a system. He did not come to pay reparations for some Roman oppression. He came to pay for your treason. Because if He didn't pay it, you don't pay it. And praise God, He paid it. And then gave us His righteousness. So we never forget that. We never forget it starts me and God, and from there everything else flows. Next step. The next step is the same one we began with. We, we end where we started. Look in the mirror. I mean, literally, this isn't figurative. Like, I figure you all have a mirror somewhere, or a phone. Some of you like 
take selfies more than you look in the mirror. So just however you look at yourself, you look at yourself. And you remember that justice started with Jesus dying for you. And when you experience the grace of God, guess what? You're willing to give that to all people. Even your enemies. No one is outside the bounds of the love you now share because it was shared with you. That's good news. That's where, that's where we landed. Your heart. And from your heart to then everyone else that you can influence in your little plot of land. And that's where we end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how it teaches us. We obviously pray for our culture that we would come back to a sense of truth, that we would come back to your word as absolute reality. We pray for ourselves. Convict us of sin, where we have lied and cheated and manipulated and deceived, where we have gossiped and hurt other people. And ultimately where we have tried to be our own God and rebelled against your authority, forgive us. And now with that forgiveness, we are so grateful we didn't take that out and we just we do all people right. So help us do that. With our kids, with our spouses, with our friends, right where we live, our co-workers, empowered by your Spirit. And we thank you for forgiving us and continuing to hold us when we mess up. May we be people of justice. No matter skin color or language, no matter nationality or state. May we be people of justice under the authority of Christ. And may people know us by our love. Help us in that way. Change our heart, O God. And so we pray that all under the authority of our Savior Jesus, the Christ. And together we say, Amen.